The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The Lord's table is one of two ordinances that the Lord has mandated for the church to observe during the church age. Both of these ordinances are simply illustrations, visual aids to understand certain crucial doctrines in the life of the believer. Uh, Baptism focuses on positional truth, that in Christ at the instant of salvation... We have been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are now dead to sin, but alive in Christ, and we have a new life in Christ. The Lord's table is a reminder of what we all have in common at the point of salvation because of what Christ did for us on the cross. The Lord's table is not something that Jesus simply invented the night before he went to the cross. It has its roots in the Old Testament and in the redemption of the nation Israel as they came out of Egypt. And it's important to understand that doctrine and theology is not something that is simply abstract, something that is just sort of created out of nothing, but it must be understood as it is rooted and grounded in the historical revelation of God to man. And the Lord's table has its roots in the Passover meal as it was instituted in 1446 B.C. when God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt in the Old Testament. So as we look at that, the events that happened in the life of Israel, if I can find a overhead pen up here. There it is. that Israel goes into slavery in about 1850 to 1900 B.C., and they are in slavery in Egypt until 1446 B.C., and it is that point that they are purchased or redeemed from slavery. The slavery in Egypt is a picture to the church of our slavery to sin, that we are born slaves to sin. And it was in the Exodus event that the Jews are purchased from slavery and then enter into a new life. And that new life is a picture of the new life that the believer in the church age has in Christ. Not that the historical events were were not significant. They had meaning and significance in themselves, but they also foreshadowed or pictured certain realities that would come to pass in the future. At the time of uh, of the Exodus event, God was trying to convince, through various plagues, Pharaoh to release the Jews from Israel. It came to the tenth plague. And the tenth plague was the greatest, the worst of all of them, and that would be that unless certain procedures were followed, the firstborn in every household in Egypt, as well as among the Jews, life would be taken. 
because Pharaoh had continued to harden his heart against God and to refuse to let the Jews go. So God told Israel that what they were supposed to do if they were to avoid death, and there were many Egyptians that followed suit. There were also a number of Egyptians that went with the Jews in the Exodus, but they followed suit and applied the principle. They were to do, uh, they were to have a meal, and as part of that meal, they were to take a lamb, and this lamb was to be without spot or blemish. They were to take that lamb. And they were to roast it on a spit that was in the shape of a cross. And then they were to eat the lamb that was roasted on that spit, and they would eat it standing up, showing that they were internalizing that lamb. Furthermore, they were to take the blood of the lamb, and they were to take that lamb and that blood, and they were to apply it to the door frame of the house. They were to rub the blood on each side of the door and on top of the door. And in essence, that forms the shape of a cross. And then when the angel of death came that night, if the angel saw the blood applied to the house, the angel would pass over. Now, another part of that of the Passover meal was unleavened bread. And in the Jewish household, they were to go through the house and remove all of the leaven. And leaven is a picture in the scriptures of sin. And so it was a picture of the fact that they were being, that sin was being removed from the household. Now every year on the 15th of the, on the Jewish calendar, on the 15th of Nisan, the Jewish household was to celebrate in remembrance of the of the Exodus, they were to celebrate this Passover meal. And as part of the Passover meal, there were also four cups of wine that were taken at different stages in the meal. And in those four cups of wine, the third cup was called the cup of redemption. So each year, on the evening of the uh, excuse me, the 14th of Nisan, on the evening of the 14th of Nisan, the Jewish household would sit down at dusk, which is when the day, day would begin, and they would have the Passover meal, along with the lamb, along with the unleavened bread and the cups of wine. They would also have a small bowl of bitter herbs, and that was to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Now, all of this also foreshadowed certain aspects of the ultimate work of Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was the announcement of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus come to him uh, on that, at that time when John the Baptist was to baptize Jesus. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ said of himself, I am the bread of life. And the bread itself was to have be given new significance on that Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. I'm going the wrong way. Am I going the wrong way? Well, on that, um, that Passover meal, we'll just have to forget this today. Um, 
at that Passover meal. And so he took two elements of that Passover meal that he was celebrating with his disciples. He took the bread and he took the cup and he invested them with new meaning. In the Old Testament, the bread and the cup had had an anticipatory function. They looked forward to what Jesus Christ was going to do on the cross. Every element in the ritual of Israel in the Old Testament foreshadowed a doctrinal principle uh, that would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice was with a lamb that was without spot or blemish, signifying the fact that Jesus Christ was perfect, that he was sinless, that he was born of a virgin, which meant that he did not receive a sin nature which is inherited and passed down through the male. He was born without a sin nature, and because he was born without a sin nature, there was no sin of Adam imputed to him. So he was born perfect, just as Adam was created perfect. And in his humanity, he was absolutely perfect. And though it was possible or potential that he could sin in his humanity, he did not sin. Jesus Christ remained completely sinless and perfect throughout his life. Because he was born of a virgin through the uh, conception from God the Holy Spirit, he was also undiminished deity. So because he he was God the value of his sacrifice was infinite. Therefore, in his humanity, he could die as our substitute, and because he was God, the value of the substitute, of the substitution was infinite. He, therefore, was qualified to go to the cross and to pay the penalty for our sins. So the night before he went to the cross, he sat down with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate what is usually called the Last Supper, but was a Passover meal. And in that Passover meal, he assigned new meaning to the bread and the cup. He said the bread was was a representation of his body. It was unleavened bread, which pictured the fact that in his humanity, he was absolutely sinless. It was a picture of the hypostatic union, that though he was fully God... He was also fully man and therefore qualified to die as our substitute. The cup represented blood. It was a picture of blood, which in itself was a picture of death. And that cup represented the death, in fact, the spiritual death, that Jesus Christ would die on the cross. When God first created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, he gave them a test. See, the issue in history is our volition. What we decide to do with the gospel, what we decide to do with God's revelation. And God told Adam and Eve that they could eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden, that he provided everything for them, except they could not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the penalty was immediate death. Well, when Adam did eat, he did not die physically because the death mentioned there was not a physical death, but a spiritual death, separation from God, and not having a relationship with God, not having the ability to have a relationship with God. And so Adam died spiritually, and consequently all of his descendants were born spiritually dead, except Jesus Christ, because of the virgin birth, was born spiritually alive. And so there was a solution that had to be provided for physical death, and that was provided by God through his remarkable plan of salvation, that Jesus Christ would bear the penalty for sin, 
in his perfection. Man could not die for sin, for his own sin. Jesus Christ died as a substitute for man's sin, so that man by faith alone and Christ alone could have eternal salvation. And it's not based on who and what we are, because it would be impossible for man to ever uh, live up to the absolute perfection of the divine standard. So God provided a salvation that took care of that for man. So that man does not rely upon himself. The issue is not sin. The issue is not our failures. The issue is simply what do we think about Jesus Christ. So the cup represents his spiritual death on our behalf. Just as Adam died spiritually and plunged the human race into total depravity and into sin and into death, So Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sin on the cross so that we could have eternal salvation. So the Lord's table is a reminder for us of what we have in Christ, of what Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us. Therefore, the observance of the Lord's table is not to be restricted by church membership or any other human facet, but is open to anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and who has put their faith alone in Christ alone. It is an opportunity for us to reflect upon uh, what we have in Jesus Christ. It is an opportunity for us to remember that were it not for Jesus Christ, we would have an eternal destiny of eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God provided a salvation For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the free gift of God, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. So as we begin, we're reminded of what Paul warned the Corinthians of, that we should not take the Lord's table lightly. And as we come to the Lord's table, we should make sure that we are prepared, and that means that we need to confess any sin that we're aware of, make sure that we are in fellowship with God, So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Silently pray to God, admitting any known sin, and we're instantly cleansed. We are in fellowship with the Lord and prepared for worship at the Lord's table. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, uh, the deacons will come forward, and then I'm going to ask uh, Ken if he would return thanks for the bread with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Jesus then took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's stand together and sing 246. Hymn number 246, Man of Sorrows. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name 
of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we uh, need to first go to the Lord in prayer. So let's bow our heads together and we'll open in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to worship you through the study of your word, that we may learn to think your thoughts after you, that we may learn to think about reality as you have defined it, and that we may be able to understand the remarkable spiritual life that you have provided for us. Now, Father, as we study these things, we pray that we would be challenged by them, that we would be responsive to that challenge and have the courage to live this spiritual life that you have given to us. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. We are still in the midst of our introduction to John. Now, for the last seven weeks, we have sort of had a mini-series sandwiched in here, focusing on the angelic conflict, because that is the backdrop to understanding what John has to say in these next couple of verses. If we don't understand the dynamics of the angelic conflict, the the, uh, the rebellion from eternity past, when Lucifer rejected the provision of God and wanted to be like God when he in his heart sinned and uh, stated the five I wills of of Isaiah chapter uh, 14. It was at that time that there was a rebellion among the heavenly host, among the angels, and Satan led a third, or Lucifer led a third of the angels in rebellion against God, at which time he became known as the accuser, the adversary, otherwise known as Satan. So that is the backdrop here, that Satan is the avowed enemy of God and the enemy of all believers. He is, has in, in, invented a system of thought, a number of different philosophies, religions, etc., called cosmic thinking in the Scripture or worldliness. And that is the backdrop for understanding the warning of verse 15. Now, as we come to verse 14, we read John saying to the his uh, congregation, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now since it has been about eight weeks since we looked specifically at the text of 1 John 2, we need to review a little bit so that we are reminded as to what has been going on. Starting in verse 12, John says, I am writing to you, little children, and he uses the phrase technion, which is a general term, a diminutive term of endearment to the congregation as a whole. 
And this statement in verse 12 is a gnomic statement expressing an eternal principle that is to be the motivation for living the Christian life. It is the gratitude for what Christ has done for us on the cross. I am writing to you, little children, because, or literally in the Greek it reads, for your sins have been forgiven you because of his character. Because of his character is the significance of namesake. That our sins are forgiven because of who and what God is. And his righteousness, his absolute standard was satisfied by the qualification of Jesus Christ on the cross. And since his righteous standard was qualified, uh, was satisfied, his justice could then pronounce man to be just once we trust Christ as Savior and receive his righteousness by imputation. The result of that is our sins are forgiven because of his character. Same principle is true of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So forgiveness there is once again grounded in the character of God, not in anything we do, any attitude we have, or any emotion we feel, such as remorse or repentance or regret or, or something like that. Not that that's wrong or that there's a problem with that, but that that is not the basis for our forgiveness. And then in verse 13, John gives sort of a summary statement to what he is about to say to three different groups of individuals uh, representing three different stages in the spiritual life in the congregation. He says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the father. So he sets apart these three groups, fathers, young men, and children. These are three stages of growth in the spiritual life. Children are young, immature believers, from brand new baby believers to those who are just beginning to advance and grow in the spiritual life. Uh, The young men are those who have reached a stage of spiritual adolescence. They have reached a stage of spiritual adolescence, and they are characterized by the statement that they have overcome the evil one, the evil one being one of many titles for Satan. And then he writes to fathers because they know him who has been from the beginning. Now, that's sort of a summary statement. The reason I say that is because if you look at verse 14, which is up on the, on the uh, screen in front of you, we see that he says almost the same things again, but this time he begins to expand on them. He expands on the statement to the young men and to the children, but he doesn't expand on the first group. In 1 John 2.14, he states, I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. It's just a repetition of what he has already said, but in order to understand this, we have to do a, a bit of comparison with the previous statement. Now, to get the full drift of what he's doing here, he is building on... Uh, let's go back to our analogy of the, of the stress busters, the ten spiritual skills that God has uh, developed and set aside for the church-age believer to handle any situation, any problem in life. Those ten skills can be further subdivided into skills developed in spiritual childhood, skills developed in spiritual adolescence, and skills developed in spiritual adulthood. We begin with the childhood, technion, the childhood skills. Begins with basics like confession. 
We learn to confess our sins because whenever we sin after we're saved, we don't lose our salvation, but we do break fellowship with God. Just as a child in the home that's disobedient to the parents breaks fellowship with the parents, and there needs to be some resolution of that disobedience. As a result of confessing our sins, we are now empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Through the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Spirit, the command is given in Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians Galatians 5.16. Then you get into basic skills. Now remember, skills are those tools that we practice over and over and over again in order to be successful at something. You have basic skills in any endeavor in life, whether it's in dance, whether it's in athletics, whether it's in uh, uh, computers, whether it's in carpentry, whatever it is, you master certain skills. And these are skills that we must master in our growth. Now, we're not going to focus on the childhood skills because John is taking these in reverse order. We're just going to build these by way of review right now. We have the faith rest drill where we mix faith with promises, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. These are mastered in spiritual childhood. Then spiritual adolescence takes place when we begin to realize that we don't live our life on the basis of what happens right now. We're not motivated by today's activities or today's emotions or tomorrow's activities, but we begin to realize that we have an eternal destiny with God, that we are uh, sons of God, we're adopted into the royal family of God, and we have an eternal destiny to rule and reign with Jesus Christ when he returns to the earth during the millennial kingdom. So we develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny, and that is related to the whole concept of inheritance and rewards. We begin to be motivated not by right now. Many young Christians are motivated by the fact that they they come to life, some impasse in life where they're faced, faced with uh, suffering, they're faced with some trauma, they're faced with, with just trying to find out what the, what the meaning of life is, uh, they're faced with intellectual questions, they're just trying to come up with the meaning of life, and uh, answering these questions is the motivation often in spiritual childhood, just trying to answer the question, what is truth, what does the Word of God say? And once we begin to understand that, a lot of times when people have their, their spiritual curiosity uh, satiated and resolved, you just see them fade out in the Christian life because they, they don't quite master the next step of motivation, which is to live today in light of eternity. And eternity is related to, to rewards and inheritance. And then when we reach spiritual adulthood, that's when we really develop in depth our relationship with God. We have mastered basic doctrines of theology proper, the essence of God, the attributes of God, doctrine of the Trinity, and we move beyond that to an understanding of who and what God is. And this is related to our love for God. Love is always related to knowledge, and we develop our personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and uh, occupation with Christ. And the final and ultimate step is when we begin to fully realize on a day-to-day basis the perfect joy and happiness that Jesus Christ bequeathed to us where we have perfect stability, tranquility, and contentment despite our circumstances. That's the map. That's the blueprint of the spiritual life of the church age. And these skills are all related to, to facing problems, adversity, difficulties in life. Now, to understand this, this graphic can be laid over everything John says from verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. 
in a remarkable way. Now, this graphic is just an extrapolation from various doctrines that we've studied. We've all go, we've gone through this many times, but I think that if you take the time to use this as a as a backdrop for what John is saying, it will become abundantly clear as to the significance of his statements here. First of all, let's begin by uh, going back and looking at the first statement that he makes. The first statement that he makes related to the fathers, the mature believers. He said, I, I write to you because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And he is talking about Jesus Christ here. The reason we know that he is not talking about the God the Father, but he's talking about God the Son, is to go back to the beginning, the very issue that gave rise to this epistle had to do with the deity of Christ. And at the very beginning, we dealt with the backdrop of incipient Gnosticism, uh, Docetism, that the, that the real issues here related to the person, understanding the person of Jesus Christ as undiminished deity and true humanity. And so he says to them, you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Now, let's focus on the verb there, because that is what breaks open the meaning of that phrase. It is the perfect active indicative of the second person plural of gnosko. G-I-N-O-S-K-O. It's a perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense emphasizes the present results of a past action. If we're going to graph this out, it would look like this. This X marks the spot or the time or the occurrence of a past action. The emphasis here is on the present results of this past action. It doesn't say anything necessarily about the ongoing results of that past action into the future. But John is saying at this point in time, you're spiritually mature. See, they can still go into reversionism and go into carnality and sin and just blow everything. But he is saying at this present time, you have come to know the Father. But the use of gnosko here in the perfect active indicative is important in terms of how John uses this word in this particular parsing in this epistle. It's a perfect active, active indicative. The active voice indicates that the subject performs the action. In this case, the subject, the subject is these individual believers who have reached spiritual maturity. It emphasizes the fact that it is a result of their volition that they have reached spiritual maturity because they have made it a priority in their life to study the Word of God and to apply it consistently in their lives. As a result of that, they have reached a point where they come to know, not just in terms of academic truth, but in terms of a relationship with God, with specifically Jesus Christ. It is more than academic knowledge. Now, let's look at how this word is used both by our Lord Jesus Christ in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14, as well as in this first epistle to John. John 14, 7. 
Jesus is in the upper, upper room. Now, I want to remind you that 1 John is written by the Apostle John, who is present in the upper room, and, the vocab- and, and, and he is the only gospel writer who gave us all the details of what Jesus taught in the upper room. The vocabulary, the phraseology, the idiom of John's epistle is similar to the idiom, the phraseology, and the terminology of the upper room discourse. And I've, I've stated this again and again, that John was the, close, the apostle closest to, to the Lord. And as a young man, he was impressionable, and he adopted a way of speaking and writing that was very similar to that which Jesus used. And that's typical in many situations today. You can see where a young man, a young pastor, often imitates uh, an older, mature pastor who has impressed him with his uh, oratorical skills or his way of teaching. And as he begins to learn, he just imitates the the um, established pastor as he's learning how to communicate. And and that, that's often true. And so we see this in John. And John mirrors the Lord in the way he uses this terminology in John in First John. For example, in John 14, 7, Jesus says to to the disciples, if you, and there's a second person plural, if y'all had known me, y'all would have known my Father also. From now on, y'all know him and have seen him. Now, the couple of things we need to note here that are important. First of all, the concept of knowing Jesus can be understood in one of three different ways, and we have to make sure we have the correct understanding. First of all, we can know Jesus in an academic manner. People can read a book about Jesus. They can read through the Gospels, and they can understand certain facts about Jesus' life, that he was born in Bethlehem, that uh, his, his father was a carpenter, that he lived in obscurity until he was about 30 years of age, and then he had three to three and a half years of ministry, and then he was uh, crucified. They may interpret various details in different ways, that he was a religious teacher, he was a... Uh, miracle worker, many other things they might say about him, but you can understand certain things academically about Jesus that have nothing to do with whether or not you are a Christian or whether or not you are trusting him for salvation. That's one way you can know Jesus. Another way that the word knowing me or knowing Jesus has been interpreted is in a, uh, a salvation sense. And this would be comparable to the idea of you have met me uh, in a salvation sense that we have uh, trusted Christ as Savior. Some people may phrase a question in salvation, well, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Or they may just say, do you know Jesus? And what they mean is, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Where knowing Jesus is roughly synonymous with faith alone in Christ alone. But that is not how Jesus or John uses the perfect active indicative of gnosko. He says to the disciples in John 14, after he has expelled the one unbeliever in the crowd from their midst, after Judas Iscariot has left, Jesus turns to the other disciples and he is instructing them on the principles that will characterize the spiritual life of the yet undisclosed church age. He's just beginning to give them this instruction and they're beginning to question him as we studied when we went through this passage, they were uh, surprised, although they shouldn't have been, that he was leaving. They couldn't grasp what he was teaching about the fact that he would be going to the cross. And in the course of that discourse, he comes down and he says to the group, If you had known me, you would have known my father. 
Now, they know him. They've been with him for three years. So this isn't academic knowledge. This isn't even salvation because these 11 are saved. This is something deeper, more profound than a simple academic truth, simply being introduced to Jesus, simply having a day-to-day relationship with Jesus. He's saying, if you have truly come to know me in an intimate way, and they haven't. So this tells us that you can be saved and not know Jesus. You can be saved and not have a profound understanding of who he is, that this knowledge is a more in-depth knowledge based on, a, on an in-depth relationship with him. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And then in verse 8, Philip says to him, I often characterize it, Philip kind of looks at him with glazed eyes and goes, duh. Lord, show us the father. Jesus just got through saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So, you know, he's just not playing with the full deck right now and he's a little confused. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds in pure patience, Philip, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? See, Jesus recognizes that he's been with Philip a long time. Philip recognizes Jesus. They've had a relationship. They've had conversations. Philip has watched Jesus... Uh, heal the, the, the lame and cast demons out of the, out, out of the demon-possessed and, and give sight to the blind, but he doesn't really understand who Jesus is yet. There is a superficial understanding that's enough for salvation, but there's no real in-depth, mature knowledge of who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, you haven't come to know me, Philip. He's saved, but he doesn't know Christ. Knowing God is, knowing Jesus is more, is a more in-depth knowledge that involves long-term relationship and growth. Now, this is the same thing that John emphasizes in 1 John chapter 2. Look at 1 John 2, early in the chapter, beginning in verse 3. John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Perfect active indicative of gnosko. How do we know if we have come to know him? This isn't by this we know that we're saved. Because the, the principle for knowing how well we have come to know Jesus is if we keep his commandments. It has to do with obedience of commandments. So verse 3 is not talking about salvation understanding. It is talking about spiritual growth and coming to an intimate understanding of who Jesus Christ is and an intimate relationship with God. By this we know that we have come to know Him. So coming to know Him is an advanced stage in spiritual growth, according to verse 3, and it is characterized by obedience to His mandates. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So the point that John is making when he says to the fathers, because you, know, you are fathers because you have come to know him who was from the beginning, he is indicating that there is an intimate knowledge over time that now characterizes their relationship. If they have come to know Jesus, and you put that together with verse 3 and 4, that means they are also keeping his commandments. They are spiritually mature. They, don't, they understand His Word. To keep His commandments means you have to know His commandments. To know the commandments means you have to understand the commandments. That means they've had clear instruction and they have advanced beyond elementary doctrines and they are consistently 
walking in fellowship. But there's more to it than that. It's not just a matter of knowledge of the commandments. It's, it, 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 there's a relationship in the Scriptures between knowledge of Jesus, knowledge of the commandments, and obedience to the commandments, and loving the Lord. See, love in Scripture is not a matter... Love in Scripture is not a matter of emotion or feeling or sentiment. It doesn't matter how we feel. Love in Scripture is always evidenced by action. You go back into the Old Testament, it's rooted and grounded in the Old Testament concept of chesed love in the Hebrew. That is a love that is based on a covenant promise that God made to Abraham, and then God is going to be faithful to that promise despite the unfaithfulness of the Jews. And notice what John says in, said in John, 1 John 2, 4. He says, he goes on to say that the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, that's going to be important. The truth is not in him because when we get to the, the, the young men, the, the, the Neoniscoi, the adolescent believers, it's going to say the word of God abides in them or dwells in them, abides in them. And so, so the contrast to the mature believer is that the, he, the, the word is not in him, the truth is not in him. But, verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So keeping his word is tantamount to obedience. So keeping his word means that love for God is being perfected. Now, what does it take to keep His Word? What it takes to keep His Word is you have to know Him. So, if knowing Him leads to keeping His Word, and keeping His Word leads to loving Him, then we see the connection that love is related to knowledge. You can't love God apart from advancing in intimate knowledge of Him. You can't know Him if you're not spending a lot of time studying the Word, learning about Him. We cannot love someone we don't know. We can have attraction for someone we don't know. We can have... Uh, hormonal reactions towards someone who is physically attractive, but we cannot have true soul love for someone that we don't know. And that is impossible. And so we can't have true soul love for God if we don't know Him. And too many Christians run around with a superficial concept of love, singing songs like, Oh, how I love Jesus, and they're, they're, they're excited that they're saved, but they don't know anything more than that. You could ask them what they think about the hypostatic union, and they would look at you like you were speaking Greek. You could ask them any number of questions about the uh, impeccability of Christ, and they would look at you as if you were, you were Chinese. Because they don't know anything about Jesus other than that they're saved and that's it. But as we're seeing from the Scriptures, the disciples knew that, but they didn't know Jesus. See, we can't know Jesus unless we're in the Word and it takes time. Knowing Jesus is related to spiritual maturity, not infancy and not adolescence. So when John says to the fathers... I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know him who has been from the beginning. He's making a statement that coming to know Jesus, having this intimate knowledge and relationship with Jesus is related to loving him. Loving him is related to knowing him. And this is what characterizes the mature believer. So when we go back and we look at our our overall chart, what we see in our diagram is at the top, is that the three key elements, what I call the love triplex, personal love for God, which is the motivation and ground for being able to have impersonal or unconditional love for mankind, and occupation or focus with Christ, those three elements 
are what characterize spiritual adulthood. And I want to, I'm pointing this out because this is not just some sort of abstract theological construct here, but it is grounded in the text. See, the text says that what characterizes the mature Christian is that he has come to know, come to have an intimate knowledge relationship that is equated with love for Jesus Christ. And so that is why the spiritual adult is characterized by love for God, and that is demonstrated by obedience to divine mandates. Failure to obey divine mandates is... Uh, uh, signifies a, in, an inability to love God and an inadequate knowledge of Jesus Christ. This was made clear by our Lord Jesus Christ furthermore in the upper room discourse when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The barometer for divine, love for God is obedience to the divine mandates in the New Testament. So the first stage that we're looking at here, the first group, the fathers, are fathers because they have come to know him. They have come to have an intimate knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And that has produced a true significant love for the Lord Jesus Christ, which is evidenced by consistent obedience to his mandates. That's the first group. The second group are the young men. I have written to you young men, and now the next two verses are going to characterize uh, the young men, or the next four verses, verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. These four verses all relate to young men because he doesn't shift to the next term, paideia, until 18, when he shifts to children. So, 14 through uh, 18, 14b through 18, focus on the characteristics of and of the young men and what they need to work on. See, they, he doesn't say anything to the fathers about what they need to work on because they've arrived. They've hit spiritual, spiritual maturity, and they have all of the problem-solving devices in place, all of the stress busters in place, and they're fully operational as mature believers, glorifying God to the maximum and experience true, genuine, divine happiness and joy in their lives. So he comes now to the young men, the Neoniscoi, and he says to them, first of all, you are strong. You are strong. And here we have the key word is strength, which is the masculine plural nominative adjective iskuros. The adjective is iskuros, which is from the noun... which is from the noun iskus. Iskuros looks like this. I-S-C-H-U-R-O-S from iskus. I-S-C-H-U-O-R-U-S. Now, it's important to make these connections because of other verses where these, this word is used. For example... Let's look at Ephesians 6.10. This is where we were making the connection with uh, spiritual warfare in the angelic conflict the last seven weeks. Ephesians 6.10. In Ephesians 6.10 we read, 
finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, here we have to look at several synonyms that are used in this verse to help us understand the connections here. This is crucial to understanding our advance in the spiritual life. As the immature or as the as the adolescent believer, these believers have reached a level of victory in spiritual conflict. For example, we read let's look at this in verse ten. Be strong in the Lord. Now be strong is the present active imperative of the Greek word in dunamao. E-N-D-U-N-A-M-O-O. And that is the preposition in plus the verb from dunamis meaning power or ability. So we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength. And here I would rather rather translate this to be consistent with the word we have over in 1 John 2.14. And be strong in the Lord and in the power of His strength. Because this first word that's translated strength in New American Standard comes from, comes from the Greek kratos. K-R-A. K-R-A-T-O-S, having to do with strength or power. And in the strength of his might, or what I would rather translate, the, the power of his strength, might is from iskus, I-S-C-H-U-S, which we have, C is the noun form of the adjective that appears in 1 John 2.14. Now, the reason I go to this verse is because it demonstrates the connection between these three synonyms. That we are to be strong and our strength comes from God's strength. It is not our inherent strength. This is seen in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 11 where Peter says, Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies. So that we are to serve in the Christian life, not on the basis of our own power, our own ability, our own strength, but on the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is to glorify God. We are here to serve God, and to do that we do it in the strength which He supplies. Now, a synonym for, <coughs> for iskuo is dunamis as we see in Ephesians 6.10. And to understand the concept of how divine power is given to the believer, let's go to an episode that also relates it to, to, to a spiritual warfare issue in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Here we see a situation in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul where he is faced with a, a, a debilita- some sort of debilitating and overwhelming adversity. We don't know exactly what it was. I think there are hints in the text to indicate it's just the opposition, the extreme opposition that he had to face in performing his ministry. 
that uh, wherever he went, he seemed to be uh, met with opposition. With uh, uh, Verse 10 says, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. And he concludes, For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the strength of the believer. Now, how, does, how did he come to understand this? Well, as he was advancing in his spiritual life, and he faces the fact that in his ministry serving God, he has certain abilities. The Apostle Paul knew more than any, had been given more revelation than any other apostle. He knew more about the spiritual life. He knew more about God than anybody else. And he, not only that, but in his just natural ability, he had a higher IQ than anybody else. And so there was a natural tendency, as there is for anybody who has been given so much and to be so talented, to be a little bit arrogant. And so God gave him, allowed something to happen in his life that would uh, uh, keep him humble. Verse 7, we read about it. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that is, all of the, that which God has revealed to him, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, it's just described here as a thorn in the flesh, as a metaphor for, for something that continually that he continually struggled with, that was a continuous irritation and problem. And it is further defined as a messenger of Satan to buffet me, so that the origin of this adversity is satanic. The term a messenger of Satan in the Greek is an angelos of Satan. Angelos is the term angel, and in this context it would be a demon from Satan, so that there was... A, a, some sort of demonic reality behind the prob problem, whatever it was. And I would suggest that based on verse 11, it was the fact that wherever Paul went, the uh, demons were stirring up antagonism against him. So that there were people who constantly wanted to throw him in jail, constantly wanting to uh, beat him in places he was beaten, he was left for dead, various other adversities that he encountered as he sought to uh, teach the gospel. So he has this constant problem, and it's given to him uh, to keep him from exalting himself. Now, he decided that, that facing this opposition and these problems, that perhaps the Lord could take it away. And so he prayed to the Lord, in verse 8, three times, that it might depart from me. But God answered him and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is brought to completion in weakness. That's our word teleao there, and it doesn't mean perfected in the sense of flawlessness. It has the meaning of bringing something to completion. So God's answer to Paul is, look, in the midst of your weakness, you're going to realize that it's not by your power, not by your might, not by your intelligence, not by your ability, but it's my power, my plan, my ability, my strength, my provision that is going to enable you to face and handle any difficulty, any problem in life. But before you get anywhere in life, you've got to understand that the principle is grace, that my grace is sufficient. That means that God has supplied more than enough for us to handle and face any situation and any problem in life. And so this relates an important concept to strength, and that is strength derives first from grace orientation. First from grace orientation. Now let's go back and look at our chart. In spiritual childhood, remember we're talking about the adolescent believer. The adolescent believer is being praised because, first of all, 
you are strong. He got strength because he was grace oriented. And grace orientation is the third spiritual or the fourth spiritual skill. We Second Peter three eighteen says that we grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when John tells the young men that they are advancing spiritually. He praises them first because they are strong. Strength comes because we understand that God's grace is sufficient for for us and His power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, we can boast about our weaknesses, as Paul says, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So the principle is that God's grace is sufficient for us, and because of God's grace, we experience His power, dunamis, which is a synonym for iskuo. Then secondly, secondly, he says, not only are you strong, but the Word of God abides in you. The Word of God abides in you. This is the uh, genitive of God, is the genitive of source, indicating that the Word comes from the source of God. And since God is perfect, His Word is perfect, and has been revealed to us, God is powerful enough to make sure that His Word is revealed to us without error. Now they are told, they are praised because the Word of God abides in them. This is our next stress buster, the next spiritual skill that is developed, and that is doctrinal orientation. The Word of God dwells within them. Jesus said in John 8.31, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. It is not something that happens at salvation. It is something that happens through spiritual growth. That the Word of Christ dwells within us. That is from Colossians 3.16 where we have a synonym. Uh, we have minnow in John in 1 John 2.14, but that is a synonym for uh, in oiko, in Colossians 3.16, which means to dwell in, to inhabit, to be with, to remain. And what is Colossians 3.16 tells us that the key to spiritual growth is letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within us. And so Paul says, first of all, you've reached spiritual adolescence because you've understood that it's God's power, not your power. God's strength, not your strength. So you're strong because you've finally become oriented to grace and become humble under the hand of God. Secondly, you've reached spiritual adolescence because you're doctrinally oriented and the Word of God is shaping your thinking. You have gone through uh, the renovation of your thought, according to uh, Romans 12.2 that you are not being conformed to the world, but letting the, uh, letting the Word of God transform your thinking. And then the third thing he's going to say, which we do not have time to develop this morning, is he is going to say that, that furthermore, you have overcome the evil one. And the key to understanding that is the verb. That's the hermeneutical key. It's the perfect active indicative of the verb nikao. The noun is Nike, which is mispronounced in English parlance as Nike, and you put it on a tennis shoe. And it means victory. It means to win. It means it was an athletic term. It was used in military terms. And it means to overcome the opposition. And where we're going to go with that, and we need to spend a little time with it, is that this is a word that is used in almost every letter to the seven churches in Revelation chapter two, chapters 2 and 3 to indicate the believers that are going to be rewarded in heaven. And what this does is bring in the next stage. Because you see, as a spiritual adolescence, that, that we begin to grapple with the idea 
that what we are today, the decisions we make today determine who we will be in eternity. That brings in the whole concept of rewards and inheritance. The passages that we're going to look at in Revelation 2 and 3 demonstrate that it is only when we reach the stage of being an overcomer that is when we start accumulating rewards and building our inheritance in heaven. You see, being in heaven is a gift. Heaven is not a reward. It is a gift. But our position in the kingdom as joint heirs of Christ is determined by the degree of maturity that we go through here on earth because God is not going to give rewards and responsibilities in the kingdom to spiritually immature people. And just because you, uh, you don't grow up here on earth doesn't mean that when, you, when the resurrection occurs that you're automatically spiritually mature. Whatever capacity you develop here on earth is the capacity you're going to start off with when you arrive in heaven. So the key issue for John is that he praises the adolescent believers because they have become grace-oriented. That's the source of their strength. They have doctrinal orientation because the Word of God abides in them. And they've been able to overcome the evil one. In other words, the basic distractions that Satan throws at us in spiritual childhood, they have had victory over that so that they are now living uh, based on their personal sense of their eternal destiny. They are focusing on the fact that they are living for rewards and inheritances, and so they are advancing. And so John's warnings in 1 John 2.15 are warnings related to the distractions for the adolescent believer. And we'll begin there next Sunday with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to understand the dynamics of our spiritual life, that you have given us a unique and profound spiritual life in this church age that is unlike the spiritual life of any other time in human history. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning that is unsure and uncertain of their eternal destiny. Uh, You can be sure and certain of your eternal destiny right now, right where you sit, simply by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus went to the cross to die as a substitute for your sins. There he paid the penalty for every single sin that's ever been committed in human history or ever will be committed in human history. So that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Father, we pray that you would challenge anyone here with the truth of the gospel, that they might respond uh, through faith alone in Christ alone. So right where you sit, all you need to do is express faith. If you trust in Christ, God the Father knows that, and you are instantly saved, and that can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with this spiritual life, that, that we are saved to grow to maturity, that you have given us everything we need, Your grace has provided everything that it is our source of of, uh, and our sustenance and the source of our strength and that your word is the means by which, in accordance with the Holy Spirit, the means by which we grow and advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.